We read scripture from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And we read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 16, which speaks of the death of our Lord and our own experience of death. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Being now made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We read God's word that far. 
May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we take up Lord's Day 16 on page 10 in the back of our Psalters. Question and answers 40 to 44. Question 40. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he also buried? Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added, he descended into hell, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we look at the subject of death. Death is not something appealing to our natures. Death is not something that we desire to talk about. But death is a reality that we cannot avoid. Every one of us here this morning will die unless God spares us to the second coming of His Son. We don't know when God will take us, but death is a reality that none of us can avoid. Now, the Bible speaks of death in two different ways. First of all, there's the death, that is, the final death. The moment the heart stops, the brain waves cease, that person then is translated into hell. Then there is the second death of the final judgment of the wicked in hell where God's wrath is poured upon them in body and in soul. The Bible talks about both and the Bible talks about the fact that Jesus Christ endured them for us and on our behalf and that he was victorious. Now the result for those who are in Jesus Christ is that death is transformed. Death is turned into victory. And that's the emphasis that we have here in Lord's Day 16. The Bible speaks of death for the child of God as resurrection. At the moment of death, the soul is translated into life with God. And then at Jesus' final return, the body is united to the soul again. And the experience is everlasting bliss in glory as the second resurrection. That which we confess then this morning is this, that Jesus Christ took death in all of its horror upon himself, and that he made it something beautiful for you and for me, 
by faith. The Catechism considers the death of Jesus from the viewpoint of its necessity as a sacrifice for sin and a sacrifice that satisfied God's justice. And the reality, beloved, is this. In the face of death, we can have comfort. In the face of death, we have hope. And the rich benefits that Jesus earned are ours by faith. And so we look at this theme, Christ's death, our life, noting the horror of hell, the sorrow of death, and the final victory. The Apostles' Creed here speaks of Jesus' descent into hell. It does that last. We look at it first this morning. Why did Jesus go to hell? And when did Jesus go to hell? Now, the way in which our Apostles' Creed, which we're familiar with and which we confess, states it, it puts descent into hell at the end. We don't take that to mean that Jesus suffered, he died, and then after that, at some point, he went to hell. The Apostles' Creed is not meant to be strictly chronological in that regard. Now, it's true that when it was written, there was confusion. And part of that confusion may have been a misunderstanding with regard to 1 Peter 3. Thinking that 1 Peter 3 was speaking of some event by which Jesus would go to hell after he had died. That's a wrong understanding of 1 Peter 3. And... We believe that Jesus made himself very clear where he was going when he died. Even you children remember it. When he spoke to the repentant malefactor, what did he say? He said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He knew where he was going. He was going to paradise. And he would be there that same day with the repentant malefactor. Similarly, when Jesus breathed his last breath, what did he say? Father, into thy hands... I commend my spirit. In Luke 23, verse 46. Immediately after his death, he went to his father in heaven. 1 Peter 3 is talking about something different. It's talking about a declaration that Jesus made with regard to all of heaven and hell, declaring the wonder by which he had accomplished victory. But it's not speaking about Jesus going to hell. Literally. When did Jesus then experience hell? Again, you children know this. As you've studied this, it was during that three-hour period of darkness. Rather than Jesus going somewhere, hell came to Jesus. And while Jesus was on the three-hour, was on the cross during that three-hour time period of darkness, he experienced the horror of hell. Now, the catechism only indirectly explains this phrase as it occurs in the catechism. That's striking. It lays all the emphasis on the spiritual benefit that is your and mine. That's the whole emphasis of the catechism, and beautifully so. So that here again, we read of the catechism being our comfort in life and in death. And that needs to be our focus as well. Christ earned for me the assurance of salvation and the full comfort that I'm able to have with a view to death. He did that for me entirely and fully by taking upon himself the punishment of hell. So while on the cross, during that three-hour period of darkness, Jesus suffered, as the catechism puts it, inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies. The expression from Jesus himself makes clear that suffering was intense. 
You remember what Jesus cried out. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So intense that suffering was. That Jesus himself believed himself forsaken by his Father. But then God gave an answer. And that answer was beautiful. It's the answer that follows. It is finished. All the measure of suffering and of obedience filled. All that was born of the wrath of God against sin that would fall on the elect endured to the end. So that nothing, emphatically nothing, remains to secure for our eternal righteousness and life. Jesus accomplished it all in our place on Calvary. The Son of God tasted what was necessary so that all those whom he represented would know everlasting bliss and salvation in him. So thorough, so complete, so marvelous, the work of our Lord on Calvary during that three-hour period of darkness that the child of God, according to the catechism, even in his greatest temptations, the devil is kicking him when he's low. And the devil is saying, you can't be saved. You can't be a child of God. Look at all your sins. Look at all your troubles. Even in the greatest of temptations, that child of God is assured, I'm saved. I've been delivered from the punishment that I deserve because Jesus Christ took on him the torments of hell in my place. Now question and answer 44 explain and describe a horrible description of hell. Why is there added, he descended into hell, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured, and then by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his suffering, but especially on the cross, he hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Hell is horrible. Hell is not something to joke about. It's not something to take on our lips as a swear word. It's not for us to joke about someone going to hell or even speaking flippantly concerning the same. The Bible makes clear hell is a horrible place of torment, physical, spiritual, and emotional. Hell is a place devoid of God's mercy, devoid of God's love, filled only with the wrath, the absolute anger of Jehovah God. The darkness that shrouded the cross is intended to be a picture of that horror of hell. The enemies, as they stood around the cross, were amazed at that terrible sign. And they grew silent. They had been mocking, they had been laughing at Jesus, and now that darkness, so severe that they were brought to silence. Christ was wrapped up in that suffering during those three hours. And again, after Jesus came out of it, he expressed the fact that the measure of suffering had been fully completed. It is finished. Nothing remains to be paid of the ransom that was to be given to God for the people of God. Jesus paid it all. Now you and I know that we deserve hell. You know that God would be perfectly just in casting you, casting me, into hell. As we stand before God's commandments, we realize that. 
easy it is in pride to rise up and to do as Adam and Eve did the garden and to blame everyone else for our sins. But the law is directed to us personally. And we hear it and we're convicted. I know what I thought this morning. I know what I did this past week. I know I deserve hell. I stand before God and I'm guilty. It's for this reason, beloved, that we need this blessed encouragement. It's for this reason that by faith we lay hold upon what Christ experienced and His sacrifice as my hope and as my life. Why do we confess this wonder? The Catechism says, In my greatest temptations, I may be assured that I have been delivered. Temptations are real. And those temptations assail us. And they constantly are directing our eyes away from Christ. Directing us to ourselves, our own situation, our own circumstance. And our conscience accuses us. It brings accusation after accusation. The devil rises up against us. The world laughs. Can I be saved? Is it possible that I can go to heaven? Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at how horrible I've lived my life. And the catechism in Scripture says, look to Christ. Look to Christ by faith. Lay hold upon Christ. Lay hold upon His work on your behalf. The hellish agonies that He endured. Why did He endure them? He endured them for you and for me. For those whom He represented. When we see hell, And when we see the hell that we deserve, how sweet is the gospel. Jesus Christ went there. He experienced it. He took it upon himself. And he survived it. He delivered me from all my sin and from all the horror that I deserve. He was able to pray to the Father, triumphing over the horror of the second death. So that for me now, I enjoy the glorious resurrection. I enjoy life from God. Jesus said, it is finished. And the darkness lifted. The light returned. He had satisfied the wrath of God. Satan had no more claim on Jesus nor on any of those whom Jesus represented. God had satisfied, God's wrath was satisfied so that now Jesus could leave that lake that burns with fire and brimstone and re-enter the presence of His heavenly Father. And He could do it, assured that not one of His own would ever have to go there. Not one of His children would have to endure the horror of hell. By faith, beloved, we cling to Christ. We cling to this Savior who endured hell Not because of anything he had done. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He never committed any sin. God had said, the soul that sins, that soul shall die. That soul would go to hell. That wasn't Jesus. But he took upon himself my sin and went there on my behalf. We repent. We turn from our sin. We confess that sin in true sorrow. And we delight in the wondrous grace of the gospel and the glorious message of salvation. 
You children and young people face temptations. Temptations that are real and severe. Don't treat the power of the devil lightly. We know the power of the devil. We know how quickly the devil can sway our mind and sway our actions so that we think we're doing what's right when in reality we're being led into ways of sin and darkness. There are times we give in to that temptation and we suffer as a result of it. There are tremendous consequences because of that sin. But beloved, the wonder of wonders is that though you endure the consequences, though you suffer for a time, there is no hell for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are found in Him. Christ has given us the victory. And we no longer face that first or second death. Death has been translated into victory for God's children. Death has been made into life so that now for the child of God, it's the first resurrection and the second resurrection. After conquering death, Jesus then gave himself up to physical death. He committed his soul to his Lord. What is death then? And what is the sorrow of death? Death is the judgment of God upon sin. Death is not natural. There was no death prior to sin. We understand that. And that becomes a big problem with anyone that tries to sway from the literal meaning of Genesis 1 and 2. There is no death prior to the fall. Death entered as the judgment of God upon sin. Death is a complete loss of everything that's physical and earthly. We brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can take nothing out of it. That's 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. The earthly house of our tabernacle is dissolved at the moment of death. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. So that when you die, you lose your place in earth. You lose your husband, your children, all of your possessions. Everything is lost. That death is final. When God takes a person out of our lives, He's telling us that we need to learn to live now without that person. God, according to His sovereign good providence, ordains for good that loss. And that person will never come back. He or she may have seemed indispensable to us. God was pleased, perhaps, to use that loved one in so many marvelous ways to draw us closer to God and to strengthen our faith in God and His Word and His promises. But now God shows us that He continues to shower His love upon us. He continues to satisfy our needs without that one. Now from an earthly perspective, death is loss. It's total loss. But death is more than that by God's grace. Death is the realization, naturally, of God's wrath upon man for sin. The day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Death did not come from natural causes. Death is not a natural event that takes place in the world. Death is the violent intervention of God's wrath on a creation that's given over to sin. And so the emphasis of this Lord's Day is to understand then that Jesus' suffering and death were real. He endured what was the judgment of God upon a fallen 
mankind. He really suffered. He experienced that death and he was buried. Now there's a profound wonder that takes place there. And our minds struggle to get around that. How is it that the Son of God died? Some would insist the Son of God. He's very God. And God has life in himself. And therefore, it's a blasphemy to say that the Son of God died. They insist it was the man Jesus that died. While Jesus the man died, the Son of God lives to eternal glory. Now, we need to understand and try to wrap our minds around that. It's true that the divine nature cannot suffer death. God is the living Lord. He's life. In him is divine life and there is no suffering. Jesus is the person of the Son of God. As such, he subsists eternally in divine nature. And in that divine nature, he's in the bosom of his Father. He lives a life of infinite, perfect perfection and friendship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. That same person of the Son of God assumed a human nature. Now, he's not two persons, a human person, a divine person. He's one person, and he remains one person as the divine person of the Son subsisting in two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. It was this person of the Son of God that suffered the death of the cross and experienced hell who committed his spirit unto God and was buried. Now, he suffered all of that, not in the divine nature, but according to the human nature, so that the divine person of the second person of the Trinity in his human nature died. He experienced death. The catechism is accurate then to speak of the fact that satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. The Son of God died. No mere man died on Calvary. No mere man, no matter how righteous, could atone for sin. No mere man would be able to bear the punishment of God's wrath. Only the Son of God could atone for sin and could taste death for you and for me. And only He could bear the full burden of God's wrath. Only He could finish the work that God gave Him and satisfy God's justice. So that Jesus Christ experienced the horror of death in a way that we can't fathom and we can't fully understand. He felt that judgment as the punishment of a righteous God upon a sinful mankind. In all his terror, in all of the fears, in all the struggles that he endured, he never strayed from obedience. Always perfectly obedient to the Father who had called him. And in the consciousness of that perfect obedience, confident that God would not leave his soul in the grave, nor suffer this Holy One to see corruption. He was assured of that victory. Now Christ's death then is very different from ours. His death was an act. It was a sacrificing of himself, a giving of himself as high priest. Our life is taken from us. Jesus gave his life. The eternal Father of heaven and earth pronounced his sentence on the Son. And the Son gave his earthly house to his Father. His body hung on a tree. He gave up 
the ghost. It was a willful act of sacrifice in love as he gave himself as that sacrifice for your and my sins. So that Jesus suffered the horror of death in all of its reality and yet was sustained by his divine nature so that he could face it as the victorious one. And he did so, taking upon himself the full experience of death and hell in our place. And then he was buried. In his burial, his death is completed. His body prepared for the resurrection. He had to go to the grave in order to declare the victory over the grave and to raise from the dead on the third day. He cried out, Father, into thy hands do I commend my spirit, demonstrating that he was dead. The spear was thrust in his side, causing blood and water to gush forth. He who stood in the place of the elect had to suffer and die not only, but had to complete that death by going into the place of corruption. His body returning to the dust. The dust, he would come. So he could show the power of the resurrection and the wonder of God's life. He accomplished all of that so that he could have the victory over sin, death, and hell. And that's what Romans 6 now makes as its theme. The whole theme of Romans 6 is the victory song that's grounded in the fact Jesus Christ was crucified. He was dead and buried as your representative head. And as a result of that wonder, we stand in Christ. And in Christ, we are made free from sin, death, and hell. For it was not a mere man that laid down his life. It was very God of gods. That's the song of victory, beloved, that is ours this morning. We are given the victory already now. That's what the catechism here says. Our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him so that the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Our old man is crucified by Christ entering into the realm of the dead and assuming our sin and representing us in that experience. We must remember our legal connection with Christ. He represents us in death and in life. He is my only comfort in life and in death. And we belong to him because he's my head. And we're the body that has been adopted and brought into the joy and the wonder of that relationship. As children of Adam, we are children of the devil. We are those who deserve everlasting damnation. But Jehovah God sovereignly chose us He separated us. And in time, Jesus Christ laid his life down to secure that adoption as sons and daughters of God. And as a result then, sin, death, and hell have no more dominion over us. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Sin, death, and the grave have no more place to rule or reign in your life or in mine. The corrupt inclinations of the flesh no more reign in us. The old man is dead. That's the emphasis here of Romans 6. The old man is that corrupt nature, that sinful nature that is bound to sin. That sin had dominion over us. 
That sin is the queen that throned itself in our heart and issues her command so that those who are under the dominion of that sin and the devil can only sin. Their will is bound to sin. But God broke that bondage. The canons of Dort make emphatic the extent of that darkness and reflect the teaching of Holy Scripture. The understanding is darkened. The will is perverted. The heart is hardened. The desires, the inclinations are impure. We are naturally born in sin and dead in sin. And that corruption is death already in this world. As the old man is guilty and as natural man is given over to the service of the devil. And there's only trouble, there's only death and destruction that follows him his whole life as he is under the sentence of the judge, worthy of death and hell. But Jesus came. He stood in the place of all those whom the Father had given him. He represented us at Calvary. And legally, sin has no more claim to those who are in Christ. The punishment of sin is removed. The very basis of sin's dominion in the human nature of the elect is removed by Christ. The law couldn't do it. And that's what Romans expresses, as does the whole book of Romans. But Christ, the Son of God, did it. Sin was condemned in the flesh. Romans 8, verse 3. The elect justified in Christ. Therefore, we read in Romans 4, verse 25 who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And then 5 verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now is it possible that this truth would encourage individuals to live in sin? That's the concern now with which Romans 6 opens. I know that Jesus paid for my sin. He took the burden I now can just live how I'd please. There's an inseparable connection between that justification by faith and a new godly life. Those who are justified by the death of the Son of God are freed from the dominion of sin, and they will live unto God. The apostle corrects this misunderstanding with his emphatic, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. The devil doesn't sit ruling our hearts. Christ does. And as a result, Christ will direct us in the way that is good, the way that is everlasting. We have new life within us, the life of Jesus Christ by the power and wonder of the resurrection. Now, how does this show itself in the life of the believer? Not in that sin is dead in us. We are dead to sin. Sin is not dead in us. Sin won't die in us until we die. And until then, sin is very alive within us. In fact, the opposition to that new life that is implanted by the wonder of regeneration is real. And we could even say the devil and the work of sin is more active in the life of the believer often, trying to overcome the power of grace. So that sin is very, really present. The devil is very active as he tempts God's people. The believer has but a small beginning of that new obedience. He retains his sinful nature according to his own nature. 
He needs to watch. He needs to pray in order to avoid that temptation. Though the old man is dead and buried, you and I fight all our life long to put off that sin. And even though sin is not dead, the believer is dead to sin. What does that mean again? The old man does not rule you. Christ rules you. The old man does not have the victory within you any longer. Christ has the victory because you're a new creature in Christ. And that victory is going to be shown in this way. Repentance. Both are sinners, but there's only one who's going to repent. There's only one that's going to turn from that sin. There's only one who's going to confess that sin. And that's the child of God by virtue of that new life that's in Jesus Christ. His will has been turned. He now sees his sin in all of its horror. He repents. He turns from that sin. He flees from it. He strives to walk in newness of life. He seeks the things that are above. And he longs for the day in hope when he will be delivered fully from this body of death. That's the wonder of the work of grace in the heart of God's child. We must still die But our death is the way to the fullness of life. Death is a reality that we can't avoid. But Scripture gives us beautiful hope. As the Catechism beautifully here states, our death is not a satisfaction for our sin, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. Death is a necessity so that we can enjoy the full experience of that salvation that Jesus has earned for us. And so that we can behold the face of God in all its wonder and in all of its glory. Now we just see through a glass darkly. But then we shall see face to face. Now we know the power of sin. We know the sorrow of temptation. We know the pain of the consequences of our sin. Life here on earth is hard. It's a constant sorrow, a continual death. And God wants us to know that sin. He wants us to know that sorrow so that we turn away from the things of this life. We turn away from ourselves, and we look to Christ by faith and we cling to the wonder of the riches of His grace and the hope that is in Him alone. Death opens the door to covenant communion with God without sin. God does not bring us down to death in order to satisfy His justice. The three friends of Job were trying to convince Job that that was what was happening. God is bringing you down to justice for your sin. He's punishing you because of your sin. Job vehemently rejected that bad theology. If God should enter with us into judgment, who then can stand before him? God no longer has to enter into judgment with his children because our representative head took our place. And he overcame. And there's nothing left that needs to be satisfied. It is finished. There's therefore now no condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1. Our death is an abolishing of sin. Romans 6 verse 7 says, For he that is dead is freed from sin. That's the wonder of the goodness of God for his children. The wicked fear death. Rightly so. Death is not natural. Death is the punishment of God for sin. 
Men and women think they can escape God's judgment throughout the course of this life, but they deep down know they cannot because every man stands before God with the knowledge that God is God and that God is judge and that they will face God. But the child of God, though outwardly, yes, there's concern. We don't long for death. There's a natural fear there. Takes the victorious words of Paul on his or her lips. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1 verse 21. When you and I die, we will be absolutely free from sin. Now we have a constant battle that we fight. A wearisome battle. A humiliating and shameful battle. But death will take us out of that battle. And death will bring us into the wonder of the victory that is ours to all eternity. Our death, then, is passage into everlasting life. Second death is conquered for the believer. The first death. Our death now is a resurrection. It's the moment at which our soul enjoys life with God in all of its fullness. And then... Christ's return and the second judgment is our second resurrection. When our soul now is reunited to our body and we live then in the fullness of that heavenly bliss to all eternity. Death ushers us into the victory that is ours of God's eternal everlasting covenant. God established that covenant with believers and with their seed as an everlasting covenant from the very beginning to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and to David. An everlasting covenant. God's friendship cannot be broken, though every other relationship is broken. This one relationship will not be broken. Beloved, are you afraid to die? Fearful of what you might face as that last conflict before you enter into glory. Fearful of what might happen to your husband, what might happen to your wife, your children. The thought of leaving family, leaving friends, causes tears to well up in our eyes. We're earthly. We feel that gut-wrenching struggle. With the apostle, we feel the tension. For me to live is Christ, but to die, we confess, by faith, is gain. And beloved, let us cast ourselves upon Christ, crying out to him for his grace and his mercy. And we cast our family, we cast our friends on his care, his protection, knowing that we have a sympathetic high priest, one who knows the feelings of our infirmities. Our Lord understands it. He knows what it is to face death. He had friends whom he left behind as well. He left them behind for our sake. We leave them behind for his sake. And he assures us that the fellowship that we will enjoy in glory is so great, so beautiful, that nothing in our present relationships or earthly life can begin to compare to the glory that awaits. His perfect sacrifice is our confidence that we are secure. His righteousness is our confidence that death is victory. Death has been made for me life with God. Beloved, may the confession of our mouth and of our heart ever be that of that last verse here of Romans 6. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great things thou hast done for us. What a sacrifice our Lord made in our behalf. We are humbled to the dust. We cannot fathom the love with which he loved us. And to all eternity, we will stand in awe of the wonder of that love. Cause that in this day, we might meditate upon that love. That we might stand in awe of it. That we might be humbled to the dust. And that we might worship Thee, truly in spirit and in truth. For this we pray. Amen.